he once captured readers by his cranky cynicism, gloomy sarcasm, and pessimistic outlook on life in a place that many would say was a great place to live. He even named his little corner of the Hundred Acre Woods Eeyore's Gloomy Place. Hear what our old friend once said during a blustery winter storm. It's still snowing, said Eeyore gloomily. So it is freezing, isn't it? Yes, said Eeyore. However, he said, brightening up a little, we haven't had an earthquake lately. When Walt Disney took A. Millie's classic and reworked it for the screen, Disney took out much of Eeyore's cynicism and pessimism. Nevertheless, Eeyore still remains one of the most beloved pessimists in all the world. Friends, I wonder this morning, what is your perspective in life? Are you a glass half full kind of person or a glass half empty? Are you an optimist saying everything's going to be okay? Don't worry, everything is fine, look around, how great things are, it couldn't get any better. Or, are you like Eeyore, a pessimist? Man, things are terrible. No, actually things are dreadful. Things are never going to get better. Just look around, can't you see? We are going downhill and fast. Friends, in the midst of these kind of difficult and often unnerving positions and perspectives that God here in his word is going to provide us just a realistic look at what life looks like in a fallen world. So this morning I don't want you to hear some prosperity message that if you get saved, if you're a Christian, that everything is going to go well for you. Friend, the lie that you maybe heard on the TV last night from TV preacher, well, friend, that is not from the Bible. This world is broken. And God tells us the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat it for us. He doesn't try to make the world look better than what it is. And he surely never makes us look better than what we really are. And in this particular context of Haggai, things were bad. The economy was a wreck and inflation was on the rise. These people were disobeying God and their world was literally crumbling around them. They could still see as they looked out on the horizon, dilapidated homes. They lived in the hood. They lived in the ghetto. It was rough for them. Every house was falling down. Even the temple itself had been destroyed. But yet in the midst of this time, God comes to them and says, I'm with you. Get to work. Get to work. Now last Sunday, if you weren't with us, we began looking at this, this prophet Haggai. It's, a, it's the second shortest book in all the Bible. Uh, excuse me, in all the Old Testament, not in all the Bible, but all, in all the Old Testament, it's a tiny little thing. makes up just one little page in your Bible. Two short chapters, just a handful of verses. 
And many of the words are repeated throughout. And so if you take out all the repeated words that are really a lot of repetition, and there's not a whole lot that's going on, not a whole lot to be said here. But yet what is really going on here is instrumental to what God is going to do next. This is, if you will, the edge of the cliff. They're getting ready to fall off. It is getting ready for things to radically change. Jesus is coming soon. And so what is being laid here is the preparation. This is the groundwork for the, for the, for the Messiah to come. We saw last week in Haggai where he was a messenger sent by God to give the people of God a specific message, rebuild the temple. We saw how the uh, Israelites had been exiled. They had been living in a foreign land for almost 70 years. Their homeland had been destroyed. Their temple had been destroyed. Their homes were ransacked. And they came back and they began to work on the temple. They laid the footings for the temple, the foundation of the temple. And it, it looked wonderful, but yet there was something missing. Something was wrong. Something didn't quite add up. And they began to get discouraged. See, in the midst of doing God's work, we often face discouragement. We often face challenges. We often face difficulty. And so it was for these people. And so what we see through the message of Haggai chapter 2, we're going to consider verses 2 down through verse 19 today. Next week we'll consider verses 20 through 23. In chapter 2 of Haggai, we learn to persevere. The message that Haggai has in some is that we are to persevere through the difficult challenges we face. Not by looking inward for strength, but to, by, by trusting in the Lord's promises and by gaining a godly, excuse me, godly perspective. And so this morning, we want to look at four perspectives that Haggai gives us to help us persevere in difficult. Four, four perspectives that each, as you take them and insert them into your life, will help you persevere in difficulty and in trial. We see first that God is present with you. Secondly, that Christ, or that, excuse me, that God in Christ is in control of everything. Thirdly, that God has a plan and a purpose for everything he does. And fourth and finally, that God will bless your perseverance. Let's look first at this first point, that God is present with you. Look with me here in chapter 2 and verse 1 of God's word. We see here, the, the point here is that God is with them. Look at verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came out of the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. 
Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, not your for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. We see that Haggai sends a message to the people of God to continue in the work because God is present in their midst. God had not left them or abandoned them. Though, if they were to look out on the horizon, it surely appeared as if he did. It surely appeared that God's blessing was no longer on the nation, that his promises had failed because the people of God had been persecuted, they had been destroyed. But in this short passage, God renews his covenant commitment with his people. He tells them, I am with you in this. I have not left you. I have not abandoned you. No, I am with you. Why were they needed encouragement? Why was it that they were... Well, what it appears to have happened between what we looked at last week and this week, so some time has gone by. So, you know, for us it's only been a week, for them it's been a couple months. And uh, as we consider the time, they began to be discouraged in their work. They were frustrated by it. Yes, they were building the temple of God, but something was upsetting them. Something was discouraging them. Something was preventing them from continuing the work. And did you hear it? Look at God's question again that he has for the people. So again, back in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So God says, hey, anyone out there in the crowd, anyone there in the congregation of Israel who saw Solomon's temple, the one that used to be here, the one that used to stand here, you, you remember that thing? The heads are nodding. It was glorious. It was beautiful. It was amazing. There was nothing like it. Nothing in all the world compared to Solomon's temple. Even Herod's temple paled in comparison to the wonder and awe of Solomon. Because we could go back and read when Solomon built the temple, literally the, the, the rivers of the world flooded in money and resources to build that temple. But yet it's gone. Nothing remains. And so as they began to lay the footings for that new temple, they began to notice something was off. The new temple was smaller than Solomon's temple. When they got the blueprints from God for this new temple, it was smaller than the previous temple. They were discouraged in their work. And so God asked them, how many of you saw that former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? In other words, you remember how great Solomon's temple was? Isn't this thing kind of puny compared to it? Kind of weak? Now remember, for you and I, maybe you don't connect the dots here. For them, the temple was the symbol of God's power and presence in their life. Smaller temple must mean smaller God. Does that make sense? So for them, they're saying, like, God, we thought you were great, we thought you were big, and here your temple is this tiny little thing. Are you not the great God you once were? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, Ezra, who is writing 
the kind of the, uh, the the historical narrative of this. Okay, so we're not going to go there, but you can go there later and read Ezra and Nehemiah, and you'll see the process. But Ezra, this gives a vivid context to really what's happening here. Uh, Ezra tells us that when the people saw the footings, the foundation of the new temple, they were not throwing a party. They were like, they, they were out there crying in the street. They were weeping because it was so small. It was so little, right? It'd be like you and I going and building a house, and we get the blueprint. Oh, this, this huge, big house. And going down there, and it's just a little two-bedroom, little lady thing. You're like, that's it? What? That's all? I get it? Wow. Right? No, but it, for them, they were weeping and crying. Ezra tells us, he records the events in this way. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had been had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. They, they were they weren't just like oh. They were like screaming, like, oh, this is terrible. Okay? They were weeping. And when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish, excuse me, the sound of joyful shouts for the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. They couldn't distinguish crying for joy. It was it was a it was a mixed feeling. The old generation, the, the, the old folks in the church, they were struggling. Like, hey, we remember when this place was full. We remember when we had like three services and the thing was popping, and then the younger generation, they're just happy to have church because like they don't have anything. They're just happy to have like something, right? And they're weeping over this. But in the midst of this, God comes to them and others. Those few words, the words that matter. I'm with you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do what I have given you to do and leave the results up to me. I'm with you, he says. He reassures them. In this short passage, God was reminding his people of his past faithfulness to save them. See, just as God had delivered them from, from Egypt, so God was going to deliver them again. The language that Haggai uses here is dripping with Moses' words from Exodus. Throughout this passage, when it talks about the nations being shooken and how all the treasures of the nations shall come into the temple, well, friends, that is the language that Moses gave to the nation of Israel as a promise that David fulfilled. It was a glorious thing as we see that God was going to deliver his people. Repeatedly in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, God would use a particular phrase to encourage the people not to fear him. So in Isaiah 4, 41-10, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Seven times in Jeremiah's prophecy, seven times, God uses this phrase to give the people courage against the nation that wanted to destroy him. See, God was, was telling them something, and he's telling something to us. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Friends, we face many challenges and many difficulties, and oftentimes we're afraid. Mm -hmm. Friend, that reminds me. 
And we know this. We understand that God's presence with his people finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The language here of Haggai, I am with you, is fulfilled with Jesus. Right? That when Jesus shows up, what does he say? I am Emmanuel. Or John, John 1, 1, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Literally, God tabernacled among them. God's temple was a sign of his presence. The tabernacle was a sign of his presence. And Jesus is God in flesh. It's a reminder that God is with us. Christ Jesus came, he drew near, and it reminds us that God is with us. But Jesus gave us a greater promise than his physical presence on earth. What did he give us? But the Spirit of God, who he said would dwell in us. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you know the Spirit of God lives in you. <laughs> Everywhere you go in this world, the Spirit of God is with you. Whether you're here, or home, or at work, or in the marketplace, God is with you. What an encouragement that is to us this morning. What a reminder it is that Christ is present in your life. For it's just as a mother or father lovingly comforts their children during a thunderstorm. I remember when Holly was little, she would get spooked out by, by lightning. And I just remember just our presence alone was a comfort to her, an encouragement to her in the midst of storms of life. And friends, God is with you in the storms of life. This is what gives us strength to endure. This is what gives us strength to persevere, is that God is with us in this. As we heard in Isaiah, I will do this work. I will work through you. Just believe in me. Just trust me through this. Friends, don't let Satan win in your life. Don't let him have victory in your life. Don't give up and think that God is not with you. Friends, Satan whispers that lie in your ear every day. God left you because of your sin you committed earlier today. God doesn't love you as much as he loved you yesterday because you weren't faithful to him. Friends, those are lies. These people were struggling in their faith because their faith was weak, but yet God was with them. Notice with me, secondly, God is in control of everything. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. For thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Silver is mine, gold is mine, sort of reminds you when you get your paycheck this week, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai encourages the people to endure the work because God was in control. Not only was he present, right? <laughs> so thankfully God is just present. Like he's just here. Like, hey, I'm here. You know, hi, I'm here. Really mean a whole lot. You can't do something about a problem. Right, if God is with you in the trial, that's one thing. But if God is actually there because he's in control of it, well, friends, that is radically different. God is present, and God is moving our trial to the 
particular ends. And we'll see that in a moment, just a minute. So, so we understand that from this passage that God is in control of kings and kingdoms. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. God is the one that's in control. So they're fearful of, of kings coming in and attacking them. But, but God is saying, listen, I'm in control. God's plan is here. Now I'm going to carry my plans out. One reminder is the people of God receive comfort from knowing that God's in control. And look, it's easy to sit here on Sunday morning in our pews and think, yeah, God's in control. Believe that. Well, we know that's a different thing when the doctor rings up and says you have cancer. Your child was killed in a car Completely different story when difficulty comes, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, the truth remains that God in his perfect sovereignty, in his perfect will, <laughs> brings about all things for his glory. The shaking of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land again reminded the people of their time. In Egypt, they would have heard Moses' words there and been reminded that God shook the nation of Egypt. And if God can shake the nation of Egypt, he can shake any nation. God's in control of all things. Even sinful nations, he says, will bring in supplies to build this temple. You want to see and understand that God is working out the plan of redemption in Haggai? God is the one who purposes everything to get to Jesus. Like everything is pointing us in that direction. He says, look, everything is mine. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, everything is mine, right? We could go down to the Federal Reserve in New York City and see all that pretty gold stamped with the seal of the United States of America. But the truth of this passage, that gold is not in the United States of America, but that is God. What that, what that means is that God has control over every nation. He, he pushes the money where the money goes. He brings nations up so he can destroy them. He may even raise up America that he might destroy her to display his glory among the nations. We as Christians rest in that and we believe that. As we heard in the scripture reading earlier, see that no one refuses him who is speaking. For if they did not escape and they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape and reject him who warns from heaven. Friends, we understand what this passage is pointing us towards is not in an immediate fulfillment, but rather this, this passage is like looking down through the corridors of time and seeing Jesus Christ in Revelation 20 standing with every nation before him. This passage finds its fulfillment in Christ when he returns. This is most clearly a passage that speaks to the end time fulfillment in Christ as he rules over the nations. And the reminder of this passage is, is that our prideful hearts can tell us often to run from God. But we may be fearful because of the circumstances. Friends, there's an encouragement here that God is in control. We're often tempted to listen to ourselves rather than listen to God. We're often tempted to look at our own hearts and say, you know, I can control this situation. I, I think I have a handle on this. Rather than trusting that God is in control. That his strength is sufficient. And he can give us the strength to endure. So brothers and sisters, I pray you'd be encouraged by this. That you would remind yourself of Christ Jesus' control of your life. 
and everything that's in your life right now, whatever's on your plate today, whatever you have, whatever difficulty, friends, a loving God has brought that to you. That he might show you that he is greater than it. That he might show you that though the temple looks weak and puny, though it just looks like any kingdom can come in and take your life away, know and trust that God is Church, we pray because God is in control. Look, if you don't believe God's in control, don't waste your time praying. Because right? praying isn't you trying to, trying to you know, twist God's arm or some, some crazy thing. Your prayer is a, is a step of faith saying, like, God, I'm talking to you because I think you're the guy that can fix the problem. Right? So when you go to the store and you have a problem, who do you want to talk to? You want to talk to the manager, right? You want to talk to the owner. You want to talk to the top, Right? And friends, we don't pray to like lesser gods. We don't pray to angels. We pray to the guy in control. We say, God the Father, you need to act or I'm done. You need to do something in my life. So we, we want our prayer to be filled with this aspect and submission to the sovereign control of God. When we pray, we're not, we're not opposing on God our will. What did Jesus pray? Right? Your will be done. Right? When's the last time you prayed, God, your will be done? Again, let me remind you, that's easy to do, right, when you're cancer-free. That's another thing to pray when you've got cancer and you're going to die. You see, you see how the Christian life comes to us in high definition when you're in the midst of trial. Right, so when things are going easy, it's like black and white, right? Everything's clear, it's Mayberry, everything looks good, everything looks wonderful, you know? But when you click on the high definition, what happens? Yeah, it hurts. It's like, I can really see some clarity now. Things aren't so black and white. Things are very vivid and painful and difficult. God is in control. Let's look thirdly. Christ has a plan and a purpose for this place. Oh, friends, I, I pray that we don't gloss over verse 9. Look with that thing again. Verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, size seemed to be their greatest concern. Their greatest cause of discouragement was the size. But it wasn't about the size of it. It was about what was inside of it. Right? It wasn't about how big it was, how powerful it looked, how awesome it looked. It was about what was gonna what was gonna walk in its walls that was gonna matter, you see. See, God isn't concerned with size. I know Southern Baptist, that's really hard to hear. Did <laughs> <laughs> you know that of the forty-six thousand Southern Baptist churches? 30,000 of them have less than 50 in them. It's our congregation perspective. God says this is a place that is going to be greater than anything you've ever seen. They were to continue to work because God had a purpose for that place. They couldn't see the purpose. And friends, often in trial, we can't see the purpose. We try to figure it out. Let, 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 let me caution you right now. Don't ever try to figure it out. The greatest question I always get asked is why. And I always say, I don't know, I'm not going. 
Friends, don't try to figure out trial, but just trust and know that God has a purpose in trial. That's where that's where our faith is. Our faith isn't trying to like you know line up all the pieces and figure it out. Like okay, I can see what God's doing. You know, He's just trying to you know I need to be patient, and so He's trying to get me maybe to be patient, or I need to be more. Well, that may be the case. It may not be the case. Don't try to answer why for someone else. Point them to the promise of God that He has a plan. Because ultimately, that's where we must rest. And friends, as we consider what is happening here, yes, the temple of Solomon was glorious. Why? Was it because it was ordained with millions of dollars of gold? It wasn't because it had all the beautiful ornaments. It was because there was something inside the Holy of Holies, right? It was the Shekinah glory of God. Remember there, when the temple was dedicated by Solomon, what happened? Just as God appeared in, in, in fire and smoke in the tabernacle, so God showed up, and the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple. And the people fell down. It was like this glorious thing. Well, God is saying, that's going to happen again. Just wait. It's going to happen again. It didn't happen. <laughs> At least not. Second temple, the Shekinah glory of God never returned. God's Spirit never returned to the Holy of Holies. It never dwelt there. We read nowhere in the Old Testament in the second temple building construction where God's glory filled the temple again, like it did in Solomon's temple. So how can it be that God's temple would be filled with a glory greater than its former? What happened one day when a man born in Bethlehem, a man who spoke with a very distinct northern Galilean accent, walked into that temple that had been remodeled by Herod. And he said these words, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. When Jesus uttered those words, what we saw was the fulfillment Haggai 2.9. That God had drawn near to his people and that his glory was shining brightly. Friends, we are reminded here today that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives and for our difficulty. And we can trust and know this morning that God in his amazing love for us sent his son to die the glory of God was revealed to us in Christ I pray that's encouragement to you that God's greater glory is displayed through Jesus Christ that Christ's radiant glory diminishes the disordering light of doubt and discouragement friend if you need help in perspective if you need to find your way again if you need some flashlight to figure out where am I in the path of darkness let that be the light, the glory of Jesus Christ. Let the glory of Christ shine again. That amidst sorrow and pain, you know that God has a purpose in it. That God has not brought you to pain and suffering for suffering's sake, but for something much greater. 
Friends, the trial of this life, the trials that we, that we suffer under, the difficulty that we are faced with, all of that serves to give God glory. Paul writes, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, time as not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, his heart was, Paul's heart was set on the greater glory. And that's what we as saints say. Let's look at his fourth and final point. This will be quick. Christ will bless your perseverance. In verses 10 through 19, we are told by God that they had once faced really difficulty because of their disobedience, but now, because of their obedience, God was working in them. God would bless their perseverance. That if they would endure... And so we see in the verse, first few verses there, God is questioning them about their practices and particular disobedience. We don't have time to look at all the details. I just encourage you to read that on your own and think about it. But we see that past disobedience led to their punishment. But what we're going to see is that their obedience is going to lead to their blessing. Haggai's message reminds the people that, look, you can't live in an unholy way and be with a holy God. And that's a reminder to us. If we, I remember years ago, maybe the reason, I don't remember. I think it was recent. Not years ago. Maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> I was speaking with some well meaning Christian. I was telling the sister, I said, unless you're perfectly righteous and holy, you can't go to heaven. She looked at me very. Because she recognized that she was not holy and perfect and perfectly righteous. She's a Christian. So I thought, like, you just believe in Jesus, like, have faith, you know, you pray a prayer or something like that, you get to go to heaven. Like, no, that's not it at all. You see, what you're believing in, what you're putting your faith in, is that Jesus isn't your ticket to heaven. But rather, Jesus is your way. You see, it's his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, that you, that gets transferred to your account so that you can get in. Only holy people go to heaven. And friend, without Jesus, you just ain't going there. And without his perfect righteousness, you can't get in. And so we understand then that unholy people can't be around a holy God. But we see here about blessing. God says he's going to bless his people and encourage his people. And so, friends, this is just meant to encourage us that, that look, we labor here on earth to receive an eternal reward. We labor, we persevere because we desire a greater reward in heaven. Our concern isn't the things of this world, but the things of another world. John Owen once wrote this encouragement to believers. Believers obey Christ, the one whom our obedience is accepted by. Believers know all their duties are weak, imperfect, and unable to abide in God's presence. Therefore, they look to Christ as the one who bears the iniquity of their holy thing, unholy things, who adds incense to their prayers, gathers out all the weeds from their duties, 
and makes them acceptable to God. Friends, the only way you can be acceptable to God, the only way that your life can be acceptable to God is through Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Friends, the encouragement in this passage is that don't allow difficulty as an excuse to sin. Allow difficulty as a means of grace that God has given you to, to make you holy. To make you holy. Friends, trial is often a gift of God to remind you that this life is not worth pursuing on this earth. That is, don't give yourself to the things of this world, but to the things of another. Right? That's what trial does. It, it gives us perspective. It tells us, like, what am I really working for here in this life? What is it that I'm pursuing in this life? Friends, we want to desire holiness. We want to persevere to be like Christ. What a reminder and encouragement to us that God is with us. That no matter how large the difficulty, Christ is present by His Spirit with His people. That Christ is in control of everything. That everything is moving to His particular ends, for He has a plan and a purpose for everything. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Friends, I hope you'd be encouraged by these words of Charles Spurgeon. The faithfulness of God is the foundation and cornerstone of our hope, final perseverance. The saints shall persevere in holiness because God perseveres in grace. I think that's how Spurgeon would say it. He perseveres to bless them and therefore believe. Believers persevere in being blessed. He continues to keep his people and therefore they continue to keep his commandments. You see it? You see the exchange that works? Thus it is free favor and infinite mercy which rings in the dawn of salvation and the same sweet bell sounds melodious to the whole day of grace. As we endure, as we persevere, your God is giving us the strength. Friends, I pray our perspectives change as we consider God's word today that we bear fruit in our lives Gracious Father in heaven, we give glory and praise to you. We ask that you would bear fruit in our life with your word, obedience, and faith. May we see the glory of Christ before our eyes as beautiful and bright, glaring locations of this world. Father, we pray that we give you honor and glory in our lives. As always, our prayers that a better sermon is heard than the one preached.